Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC's orthopedics team, offering hip, knee, joint, spine, and back treatments. Learn more at upmc.com slash centralpaortho. Welcome to The Spark. I'm Scott Lamar. It's Friday when The Spark invites a journalist into our studio to discuss the news, the news stories of the week or the issues of the week. Today we're joined by John Mysick, Penn Capital Star Editor-in-Chief. John's weekly column on politics is syndicated to 800 newspapers across the country. John Mysick, good to see you again. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. Well, one thing that... I want to start with is we have some breaking news here, and this has been ongoing for some time now. Uh, it has to do with uh, Speaker Mark Rossi in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, who has been calling for a long time now uh, for a window for sexual abuse survivors to sue their perpetrators. You have some news. Yep. Uh, the Capitol stars Marley Parrish and uh, Cassie Miller uh, breaking the story just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, the House has passed this amendment language. Uh, and a standalone bill that would allow adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse to sue their accusers in civil court. Um, the bill faces, Scott, an uncertain feature in the Republican-controlled Senate, um, as some listeners probably know, and I know that you know, uh, mostly over a procedural matter. They don't want to cons- Mark Rotzi, a survivor himself mm-hmm. of childhood sexual abuse, wants these bills to go clean, as they call them, to be considered on their own. Um, Republicans who control the state Senate um, want them considered along with a raft of other proposed constitutional amendments, uh, notably language governing voter ID at the polls and another on uh, abortion rights. So the bills are out of the House now. So survivors have have scored a long delayed win, uh, but we are not quite out of, they are not quite out of the woods yet. So just to be clear, would this be a constitutional amendment? That's correct. Um, so this was passed in the last legislative session, which is part of the procedure. Uh, amendments need to be passed in back-to-back legislative sessions. They then go to the voters uh, in a statewide referendum. Uh, they missed the window to do that for the spring primary ballot. So assuming everything goes to plan, these measures would be on the fall ballot. So the next step is seeing what the Senate does with it. And if it does pass the Senate, it would be on the the ballot in November. Right. Just to provide a little bit of context, this is something that could have been on the ballot a a while back. Yeah, that's true. There was uh, an advertising snafu on the part of the Department of State under the former Wolf administration. It's supposed to be on the spring primary ballot. Uh, in 2021, mm. I think, if memory serves I correctly. Think so too, yeah. um, but that got messed up, so they had to start over again. Mm. So, Mark Rossi is the Speaker of the House right now. I'm not going to get too far into the political weeds with this, but this was his issue. As you mentioned, uh, Speaker Rossi is a survivor of sexual abuse by a priest when he was th- 13 years old. Uh, so, what's his future now? I mean, there's been a lot of squabbling going on in the State House of Representatives past couple of months. Speaker Rossi was on a listening tour across the state. There was a special election last week. Now there's three Democrats that uh, have been elected to the House and were sworn in. So Democrats have a one-vote majority. What's uh, Rossi's future? I mean, that's an excellent... <laughs> 
An excellent question. For now, as we sit here on Friday afternoon, Mark Rotzi is the Speaker of the House of Pennsylvania, Repres- Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Um, like all of us, he is day to day, as they say in pro sports. Um, there is some thought that uh, major- now Majority Leader Joanna McClinton, uh, Democrat out of Philadelphia, could become um, Speaker of the House before the current two-year session is out. Um, you know, the issue to begin with it didn't look like. Uh, Representative McClinton could garner the votes to win enough to become speaker. So is that now an issue um, with this slender one-vote majority? But the thinking is, and we've had some lawmakers tell this to us sort of, you know, in hallway whispers that they fully expect uh, Ms. McClinton to become speaker at some point before end of session. You know, I, I mention this almost every time we discuss it on the program. Uh, There are real-world consequences to who the Speaker is, how legislation gets through the House, through the Senate, through the legislature. What are some of those real-world results because of this? Because some people hear politics and their eyes may glaze over. You know, I really don't care who the Speaker of the Pennsylvania House is, but it could have an impact on their lives. Yeah, I mean, the the Speaker sets... The, the helps to set the operating rules for the chamber. I mean, that, so that makes a big difference on what bills do come to a vote, what bills don't come to a vote, how much power committee chair people have. Um, traditionally, and as you know, Scott, committee chairs in Harrisburg have had sort of almost imperial authority um, over legislation. If they didn't want to move a bill, they could bury it under 20 pounds of peat and it would never move ever. Um, spe- now, Speaker Rodsey has proposed rules revisions that would make that um, a little bit easier, make it easier for bills to come out of vit- committee and come to the floor. Um, it, I should note that it's also really important who the majority leader is as well for the respective parties, because that office actually, in fact, uh, controls the voting calendar in the chamber and can thus dictate which bills do and do not come to a vote. Mm. I want to move on to another issue. Last week, uh, Pennsylvania's new Democratic governor, Josh Shapiro, said he wouldn't sign any new, well, I, let me take the word new out of there, any death warrants at all and called on the legislature to abolish the death penalty in Pennsylvania. Now, this week, Republican State Senator Mike Regan, who was a former U.S. Marshal, called for an automatic death penalty for those convicted of killing a police officer or law enforcement officer. Other Republicans have followed suit with death penalty proposals. Now, this is a debate that has been going on for decades and decades. And I don't know, it kind of took a back seat for a long time. Now it's back. You've written a column today where you're talking about the history of the death penalty in Pennsylvania and where we are today with this. If you would, provide some of that history and, you know, where we're going with this. Sure. Um, Yeah, I I think the first story I wrote when I got here 20-something years ago, Scott, was about the last person to be put to death by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, And that was a guy from Philadelphia named uh, Gary Hodnick. Um, Remember it? Uh, one, he's, House of Horrors. Yeah, I mean, unspeakable right. crimes. Um, he is now one of three Pennsylvanians um, to have been executed by the Commonwealth since capital punishment went back on the books uh, back in 1978. Um, all three of the people of the state put to death were, quote unquote, volunteers. They waived their appeals and allowed their sentences to be carried out. Um, the state has not carried out in execution in the intervening 20, goodness, 24 years. Um, In 2015, shortly after he took office, uh, then Democratic Governor Tom Wolf imposed a moratorium on executions. 
uh, declared that he too would not sign any new warrants. What's kind of interesting about Josh Shapiro, um, he is a former two-term attorney general, as listeners probably know. And some years ago, he in fact was in favor of executions um, for more heinous crimes under sort of more limited circumstances, but said he had kind of an epiphany on the issue. Um, and rather meaningfully said his, when his son asked him why the state put people to death, he had no good answer for him. And that was kind of his you know, road to Damascus moment on that. So the, the new governor got up last week, declared that he was going to uh, continue his predecessor's moratorium, would not sign any warrants, and went that extra step further by calling for, which is, which is what he had done on the campaign trail, but went that extra step further uh, to call on lawmakers to move towards abolition. Five out of Pennsylvania's six neighboring states have eliminated the death penalty. Ohio is the only holdout. For all practical purposes, the state doesn't have a death penalty statute. So it seems like a formality to get rid of it. But as we know, this is a hugely emotional issue. And since the governor's come out with his abolition proposal, as he said a moment ago, some lawmakers have sort of doubled down on it. And when you talk about it being an emotional issue, it also, uh, there's something that's very timely about it, too, in that uh, just this week, uh, Temple University police officer Christopher Fitzgerald was murdered, and uh, his funeral is today. Uh, I don't know whether uh, Senator Regan's legislation for uh, automatic death sentence for those who kill law enforcement is in response to that or not. But the timing of that getting so much attention, the, the killing of that police officer in Philadelphia and, uh, you know, with Senator Reagan being a, a, a former U.S. marshal. I mean, again, it, it's, it's fascinating in a way of how this issue that has been going on, debated for so long, is now at the forefront here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean, well, as I said, I mean, Governor Shapiro kind of gave it fresh legs when right. he came out and, and said this. He pushed this issue to the front and center of the public debate, which is the benefit of having the bully pulpit. One can decide what they want to talk about. Um, I have no insight into Senator Regan's motives, um, whether this is tied to the very tragic death of this Temple campus uh, police officer um, last week. Um, certainly, you could wonder about the, uh, the about the timing, but knowing what I know about Senator Regan and knowing what I know about his law enforcement background, it's also not entirely surprising. Mm. What about other Republicans? You know, that's a, that's a great that's a great question. You, you talk to some Republicans um, who declare themselves pro-life from beginning to end. Those who oppose abortion rights and oppose abortion access. Um, on the front end, I suppose, but also oppose capital punishment on the back end. They don't believe life should be taken at, at any point. Um, they, I have found, tend to be few and far between. Um, I suspect, you know, with the Democrats having this very narrow majority in the House, they will have to get Republican votes to try to get that out of the chamber. Um, trying to get that out of the Republican-controlled Senate and onto the governor's desk feels like a really heavy lift. Welcome back to The Spark. Our guest during this portion of the program is John Meisick. He's the editor-in-chief of Penn Capital Star. John, we were talking about the death penalty. Uh, in your column today, you mentioned that uh, Pennsylvania is the only state, only state in the country that doesn't provide state money for indigent uh, uh, those accused of, uh, of a murder or any crime uh, for public defense. 
Is that going to change? Yeah, the state is a real outlier there, um, Scott, and has been for many, many years. Uh, Reformers have been trying for at least as long as I can remember um, to get the state to to fund um, indigent criminal defense. Uh, Some years ago, uh, 2019, the state tried sort of a pilot program. They allocated $500,000 for indigent defense in capital cases. And Republicans who were then, Republicans at the time, kind of left the door open to maybe refunding that program in subsequent budget years. Um, I checked with the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency, which uh, administers that grant money, and they tell me that was a one-time shot. So there has not been any fresh infusion of cash uh, since 2019. You know, one of the reasons, besides uh, those who would see the moral reason for doing it, is that uh, those who are death penalty supporters would look at that and say, why are we spending money to help those who are accused of maybe heinous murders? But this is one of the areas of appeal most often uh, when there is a capital case is that uh, an attorney hasn't been effective. An attorney hasn't been effective. And in the instance of death penalty cases, um, Scott, this is one where you don't get a mulligan. Um, If you execute somebody, that's, that's it. You don't get a do-over. So that makes the need for effective defense really critical here. Even if you don't think, or pardon me, even if you support the death penalty, I think we all can agree that everyone is entitled to an adequate defense at trial. You know, because there but for the grace of God, frankly, go any of us. And I know that if I were on trial for my life, I would want every resource um, at my disposal. But... You know, again, this is something that Pennsylvania does not do. Mm-hmm. Hundred more than a hundred people on death row in Pennsylvania right now, right? Yes. How many have been exonerated? Um, I knew you were going to ask me that, so let me pull the <laughs> let me pull the story up on my laptop um, right here. I believe. Hang on, hang on. Um, eleven exonerations from death row in Pennsylvania since 1973. Mm. So in the last 50 years, eleven people. A lot of people would look at that and say, "Well, that's not a lot," but. Even one. Yeah. Again, you don't get a do-over on this one. And, you know, I I will say this. uh, When you talk, I've talked to people who have been exonerated from death row. I've talked to former capital defendants. Um, And when you realize that some of these guys, and they're mostly men, literally came within hours of being put to death until a last-minute reprieve or that key piece of evidence that exonerated them came to life... It's it's sobering. It it I, for me at least it clarified my thinking on this. It's you know we can't take any chances. Ir, ir, again, I'm not telling people what to think on this issue, but irrespective of what you think, I wouldn't want that on my conscience. I wouldn't want to be the guy who put an innocent person to death. Hmm. I want to move on to another issue. Governor Shapiro, being in his uh, first term, is outlining his budget proposal a month later than what uh, governors uh, normally do, typically do. Uh, you wrote a column about uh, the state sitting on billions of dollars of surplus money, and uh, this is not a, a, a an issue or something that Pennsylvania or any state, for that that matter, has uh, been able to do for some time. Now, let's face it; we know what, where a lot of that money came from from the from the federal government. It sounds all good that uh, there's billions of dollars in surplus here. Things are going to be great when it comes to budget, when it comes to tax increases, all those things going forward. But from what you write, 
there's a butt in there, and it may be a big butt. It's a gigantic butt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah, you do. Um, yeah, so as as we sit here today, uh, Pennsylvania is sitting on something like a projected $8 billion surplus by the time the current budget year ends on June 30th. Um, if you add in the state's rainy day fund, which is about $5 billion-ish, that's $13, 13 billion in cushion the state could conceivably have. Um, what I wrote about was an analysis by the Pennsylvania Budget and Policy Center, which is a progressive think tank um, here in Harrisburg. They looked at they looked at the numbers. They looked they, they crunched some data from the state's independent fiscal office, which is the independent arbiter of the state's finances. Um, and the IFO projects that by fiscal 27-28, the state could conceivably be running a $13 billion deficit. So, How is that possible, Jen? All right. So the federal money you talked about a couple of minutes ago from the COVID relief, that goes away. It's a one-time deal. One-time shot. That's That'll be gone. Um, the state had a multi-billion dollar dilemma dropped in its lap uh, a couple of weeks ago by the Commonwealth Court, which ruled the state's current education funding system unconstitutional. Uh, the court, because it does not legislate, looked at the executive, they looked at the legislature and they said, all right, figure it out. So they have to solve that. Um, the state has also, redu also is now moving to reduce its corporate net income tax rate from 9.9% to like 4.9% or something like that over the next couple of years, which is great because everyone's wanted that for a long time. The problem is-, is that Both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, but the problem right. is when you reduce tax rates, it means there's less money right. coming in. So when you sort of lump all of that together, that's what this ends up being. Hmm. So from the conversations you're having, I mean, I imagine that when you wrote that column, that kind of was like uh, raining on some legislators' parade that, uh, oh, here we are. We've never had to deal with this before. We've had such a big surplus. And your column was kind of like, well, just wait a minute. And from what you described with the IFO and all that, what have you heard from legislators? I mean, we were kind of here 10 years ago, Scott, uh, or maybe a little bit longer than that, with the end of federal stimulus money yeah. under the Rendell mm -hmm. administration. That went away. Republicans were like, well, wait a second. We can't go mad with spending because we don't have that money anymore. Uh, Republicans have been warning about that same problem um, throughout the length of the pandemic as well, about this one-time shot of federal money. They're like, well, you know, maybe we should be sober about this. And Democrats say, well, hey, we've got all this money at our disposal. Let's level the playing field for everybody who paid child care and school funding and any number of programs. So this is, I mean, this is a debate that has unfolded um, any number of times over the last, say, decade and a half. Um, we're heading into Governor Shapiro's first budget on March the 7th. I, I suspect in the next week or so, as the governor starts dribbling out programs, as is his custom, you'll hear Democrats saying, well, we've got all of this money, so we should spend it on things. And Republicans say, well, we're gonna, now we, we might run out, so now we can't. So we're going to be back in kind of like this like perpetual debate that we've had. You know, you brought up uh, the, the issue that was comparable a few years ago. That was during uh, the administration of Governor Tom Corbett, Republican Governor yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Corbett, where you know, he told schools, we've got this money from, uh, stimulus money from the federal government, told schools, okay, it's a one-time deal, don't spend it, and schools put it into their budgets, but Corbett was labeled then as cutting education spending, and he never uh, he, he never survived that, put it, put it that way. Yeah, that'll be on Tom Corbett's political headstone. Right. Um, it, it's, it's one of the great fictions, though, of, of Pennsylvania politics. Governor Corbett did not cut 
education funding by $1 billion. He did cut it by several hundred million dollars because of the disappearance of that federal spending money, pardon me, because of the disappearance of that federal money. But Republicans and Democrats were acting in concert, added that money back in over a period of years. But there is no doubt about it that in 20, fiscal, whatever it was, fiscal 2010, 2011, there's a great deal of pain for school districts. Mm. Uh, one final issue I wanted to talk about, and that's the freight, freight train derailment that was hauling hazardous materials in East Palestine, Ohio. That's just 100 yards, it's been described, from the Pennsylvania border. It's become a huge national story, John. Why? Um because, I mean, it's it's kind of got a little bit of everything. You have the partisan finger pointing saying between Republicans saying Democrats haven't done enough. The President Biden hasn't been there. Pete Buttigieg hasn't been there. Um, it's an environmental catastrophe of, of of nearly incomprehensible scale because of all the toxic goop that escaped into the atmosphere. Residents are still complaining. Um, it's vinyl chloride, which is the chemical they burned off as a known carcinogen. You're hearing about large fish kills. You're hearing about large amphibian kills. It could be you know years before this is fully unraveled. So it's a it's both a political drama. Um, and a very understandable human drama at the same time. But how did it become a political drama? Because everything becomes a political well, drama, Scott. I, You're right. You're right. I, everything today, you're right. It becomes a political it, drama. You know, there used to be a time where they were like, oh, my God, there's a train derailment. We have to do something about it. And then they would go do something about it. And now it's, why aren't you doing enough? You're not. We're doing everything we can. Why aren't you doing enough? And it becomes... It becomes inevitably a political football. Mm. And, you know, it's it, you were talking, I mentioned the introduction that uh, your column syndicated in 800 newspapers, and you were talking about some of the, the smaller newspapers. But, uh, you know, we I've had this conversation, I have to do it in 30 seconds left, but it's almost <laughs> like every issue becomes national nowadays. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, all of our politics are nationalized. All of our campaigns are nationalized, and that's become kind of a more toxic trend over the last, say, 10 years. Mm. On that word, the toxic, we'll have to uh, end, the, end the program. I did not do that on purpose, but thank you. <laughs> John Meisick is the editor-in-chief of uh, Penn Capital Star. John, thank you very much for being with us today. You bet. You're listening to The Spark on WITF, your home for NPR and discovering all things local. I'm Scott Lamar. <laughs>